the way that we talk impacts the way that we think. And that the ways that we think are often conditioned by society in ways we don't even recognize. So we end up in these boxes that we don't even recognize exist. We don't recognize the walls around us. And so those are the two things that really drive this work is how can we help people escape those perceived constraints recognize how their thinking has been conditioned and recognize that how you talk minute by minute with other people is going to enable or constrain certain outcomes. This is Brand Story, a podcast celebrating the stories of real people who are making an impact on brands, business, and the world around them. Welcome to the Brand Story podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Lori Britt. Laurie is a professor of communication studies at James Madison University, and she is the co-founder and co-director of ICAD, the Institute for Constructive Advocacy and Dialogue, and the board chair for the National Coalition of Dialogue and Deliberation. She's had 20-plus year career in nonprofit and organizational communications that has taken her to 48 of our 50 states. And hi, Laurie. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Oh, hey, Steve. So good to be here. And just to update you, I plan on a bucket list trip in the next month to get those last two states. Good so for that's you. that's going to be knocked out of the park. Which ones yeah. are on your list? What are the last two? Maine and Vermont, believe it or nice. not. Nice. All right. Well, yeah. those, those you can do in one little group. Exactly. That's exactly. great. Well, good for you. I haven't been to quite that many, but I'm, I'm just behind you. I did a trip across country where I got to see a lot of, a lot of the states, but I have a few missing. So how did communications become the career for you? Not to take you way back, but how did you end up in this world? I've had a very circuitous path, but I studied communication at the undergrad level. But at that point, really, the field um, was, you know, journalism or PR or mass comm. And when I went back to get a master's degree in my late 30s, started go back to education, the field had exploded and it looked very different. And what I found was what made me gravitate toward organizational and group communication was I'd been involved in my community. I'd been involved in lots of different ways and I realized that people didn't do things very well in groups and communities. Like it, there was so much dysfunction in the way that people operated. And I'm like, I know there's gotta be something better. And so when I went back to grad school, I realized, oh, there were some things that we could do to help. And so that's kind of what brought me to the place I am now. I think that's so great because, you know, when I was in at JMU years and years ago, even my degree was in under communications. And, you know, I also had a theater uh, degree in directing. And you're right. Communications was a small little window of like, you're going into PR or you're going to be in advertising or something like that. And, and I think your field has exploded and you coming, you know, sometimes academia has some blinders on, but the fact that you went out into the community and then came back probably lends some real strength to what you're doing. Yeah, I, I think that's the case. I mean, I think there's value both ways. Um, I'm definitely not, um, you know, a, a great pure researcher. I tend to do more applied research because I want to see how those questions um, impact the world or what the questions the world has or the people working in the world have. So I think there's benefit to both, but I really, I do draw a lot on my experiences in the world of work, in the communication field, and all of those volunteer groups and organizations that I worked with. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think your work in the community, you know, I know of it because you're in our community. And uh, so it's really great to talk to a friend. Um, but, you know, the Institute for Constructive Advocacy and Dialogue, ICAD, and it's a mouthful to say, 
But it's a uh, mouthful. It is. What is that work focused on? So we focus on trying to help people come together and think and talk in better ways to meet the goals and address the problems or even capitalize on the opportunities they have. So it's not always a deficit model, but basically the taken for granted things or axioms as we call them in our discipline are the fact that we recognize that the way that we talk impacts the way that we think. And that the ways that we think are often conditioned by society in ways we don't even recognize. So we end up in these boxes that we don't even recognize exist. We don't recognize the walls around us. And so those are the two things that really drive this work is how can we help people escape those perceived constraints, recognize how their thinking has been conditioned, and recognize that how you talk minute by minute with other people is going to enable or constrain certain outcomes. Wow, that's really important work. I th- I can't think of what we need more right now than the ability to talk to each other intentionally and actually genuinely hear each other. Yeah, and I, I like how the wor- that you use the word intentionally because you hear a lot of people call for, we have to be more civic, civic dialogue. I worry that that particular terminology makes people think that we have to speak a certain way, sound very educated, sound very linear, keep emotion out of it. That's not what we're after. I'm after kind of a, so it's not civil dialogue, but civic dialogue, where we recognize our shared humanity, that we live in communities together. We have to make decisions together about what kind of community we want to be in, what kind of policies what we want to have, how we want our organizations to run. So I kind of change it to, you know, intentional and civic talk, not civil talk. That's really interesting because I think the way someone speaks or the accent they have or the, the vocabulary they have is no indicator of intelligence. So, exactly. And it's certainly no indicator of value of what they're adding to a conversation. But I think a lot of people, you know, it's, it's interesting what you said when we first started talking about this is communication is almost a schema. And once yours is set, you're just locked in. It's a little bit like a financial schema. You're, once you're there, you're like, oh, well, I could never make money or I could never communicate with people that are different than me. Yep. And, and a lot of it is recognizing those schema and how they got built up and recognizing we have choices. It's just like the work I do as a college professor. Students come in and I'm not trying to tell them what to think, but I'm trying to get them to think, why do you currently think what you do? Who impacted that? How did it get shaped? And you have other choices. Do you want to make different choices or do you not? I don't tell them to make other choices, but I I simply tell them, this is how you've gotten. Think about how you've gotten to where you are and where do you want to be? And is this helping you? Yeah, I think that's so crucial. I mean, I, I think you go through education, you know, whether it's, you know, your formative education, high school and, and all that. And there are certain things you're just not taught. You're taught subjects, but a lot of times you're not taught how to talk and think and communicate with others. It just is assumed that it's going to happen. So depending on what tribe you're part of, the language. So if you're in sports, a lot of times people in sports have a very sports-oriented language. It's all win, you know. And then people in other, you know, areas of focus tend to adopt the language of their area of focus. Yeah. And so we, we, and, and we might be saying the same word. Yeah, right. But we have a completely different meaning for it. I mean, we do this work all the time. In the work that I do, we're often talking about issues that involve values. And we might both value 
privacy, but how we define what privacy means to us could be completely different. And so we have to be not only intentional about our talk, but explicit. And one of the things that I think drives this work is helping people recognize that it is okay to be curious and ask people questions. If you're asking from a space of wanting to learn from them, we try and create spaces where people are open-minded enough to hear that somebody else's perspective is different than mine. And that's really what this is all about because there's a, a great phrase that I come back to over and over again from a political philosopher, Selah Benabib. And she said, when we talk with others, we're basically enlarging our thinking. I can't go through my day not having heard your perspective on something. I can't just block it out because I've heard it now. So my thinking now has my perspective and recognizes other perspectives alongside of mine. Wow. That, yeah, that's so key to, to growing and understanding where others are coming from. And I don't think people go through their lives, their day-to-day, -day, just, you know, trying to work and live and feed their families, thinking about, the, you know, what this word or these phrases mean to me might not mean the same thing to you. So that curiosity, like even the word privacy, that's such a good example. You know, some people that's going to trigger a certain response. Other people are going to think it's a casual thing. The definition is going to be wildly different for everyone. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. That is complex work. It's simple, <laughs> but complex. Yeah. It's that, and, and everything in our world, we try and say everything is, there's never two sides to anything. It, it's a both and. It's both simple and complex at the same time. That's really interesting. I love hearing that because I, you know, I come from a theater background and when we're, you know, doing the work we do, I always use uh, a thing from improv called yes and. Yes, and, oh, we do that a lot too, yeah. yeah. So it's a listening technique where, you know, you're trying to train yourself not to have the but or the interruption in there. You're trying to teach yourself not just to agree with everything, but to go along with it until you understand where it wants to go. And I think that's, you know, not something everyone gets taught. So I'm sure when you're working with nonprofits and organizations and communities, you know, you have a lot of like stubborn positions people take and they don't even know why they're taking them. Exactly. And, and you have to recognize. So one of the things that we do is when we work with groups or organizations or communities, we're trying to figure out where is it you want to be? What's your goal? And the work that we do encompasses things like addressing harms and getting people to talk out things that they feel have hurt them. Um, the, we, we go for dialogue, which is how do we understand each other in our full complexity? And sometimes we are trying to deliberate or think about the tough choices and make choices together. And sometimes we're trying to take action. So we have to decide on that continuum, first of all, what's the group trying to do? And you know, they might say, we want to take action. I'm like, oh, talking to you, understanding your context, you're nowhere near ready to take action because you don't really understand each other, different perspectives. So you try and figure out where they're trying to get to and then design a process that's going to acknowledge the challenges they're going to have along the way. And those challenges could be things like differentials in power. There are people around the table who don't have the same power or ability to share their voice and be heard. So how do we design a process that tries to mitigate that um, and, and level that? Sometimes there's gonna be challenges of frustration. People are like, we've been talking about this forever. There's nothing we can do. I actually just facilitated a group last week and it was a team that there were some new members and some old members and some of the people have been doing this work for 20, 25 years. And we mapped out what, is, what are some of the biggest challenges? Where do you want to get? We used some techniques that I'll talk about a little bit later. And at the end, 
the best thing in the world happened, Steve. One of the people who's been in this role for 25 years said, we have been talking about the same stuff for 20 plus years. And today I feel hopeful. Oh, and I was like, yes, sure. That's so great. Because that's what you try and get to is, is I'm, I, talk is not the solution to everything. But it's part of what we need to do. We needed to fully understand. And that group started to really fully understand each other and see, oh, I see what the roadblocks are here. And I see how we're going to need, and I see how I'm going to need to collaborate with other people to remove these. So that was just a really great moment at the end of the day. And when she first started saying it, she's like, we've been doing this for 20 years. And I'm like, oh, geez, where's this going? And then she said, and for the first time, I'm hopeful. And I'm like, oh, yes. God, those kind of breakthroughs in groups, because groups really get dug in. And you know, I worked uh, in healthcare really intimately for about 13 years from a marketing perspective and working with healthcare organizations worked inside some organizations and you'd want to talk about silos, you know, nurses trying to talk to doctors and, you know, trying to agree on what X means. Um, I think we could have used your help because that was <laughs> a handful. I bet. I and bet. you said something really interesting that I just want to go back to that because it's a word that I love that almost never gets said, and it's the word deliberation. Yes. And when you think about organizations, and especially in business, everyone wants to talk and then jump right to action. I feel like, just in general, we, we need to remember to think. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about just the, the techniques and the importance of deliberation? I absolutely can, and I'm gonna draw on somebody here because I think he's just, he's visualized it for us in a way that is beautiful. There's a man named Sam Kaner, and he has this thing that everybody tends to call the groan zone, but it's actually a model of kind of participatory group process. Yeah. And we call it the groan zone because the biggest feature in the center is what he labels the groan zone. And basically he says, groups start at the beginning or communities or whoever's getting together and they start with an idea and they start immediately brainstorming like lots of possibilities for how we could address this or this. And they get so many things on the table. And then immediately they're like, okay, how do we get to action? So now we have 40 ideas floating around. And so what he says happens are either somebody who's the loudest voice in the room kind of sort of makes a decision. Well, I think we need to go in this direction and we truncate it. And so, yes, a decision gets made, but it's not something that necessarily everybody believes in or will support. So if we're going to actually find the best solution for the current context, because we have to remember, we're never officially solving most human problems. Best we're doing is managing them in the given context. But he says, we need to work through that grown zone, which involves deliberation. Let's, what are some criteria we might want to use to decide among all of these ideas that we floated around? If we choose idea A, what do we gain? But what might be an unintended consequence? What do we have to factor in? Or what might we lose? Or who might we alienate? And it involves being very deliberate in the way we consider choices to narrow those choices and then come to a best decision. And he says, groups can get stuck in that groan zone and they call it paralysis by analysis. That's what he calls it. He says, people overthink things. So we have to have a structure that helps us deliberate without getting stuck and mired down in it. And that's where deliberation can be really helpful. Come up with a few set of criteria, think about all the, all the things that you've just generated and think, what criteria do they meet? What do they not meet? 
you know, let's narrow it down to the top five. Now let's deliberate further about those till we can get to a decision. So it's a crucial part of group processes. And it's one that you don't see many groups organically know how to do on their own. Yeah, or purposefully build into the process because either they don't know to or the circumstance, the the feeling of, oh, we've got to get this done makes them leap towards solutions. And I've seen that, you know, I work in brand helping companies talk about themselves. And I've seen that exact dynamic repeat itself over and over again, where at a stage of discussion, a senior person goes, oh, yeah, I like that. And then everyone follows suit because there's a power differential or a million other factors, and there isn't deliberation built in. And, you know, every every brand or public position mistake I've ever seen by a company has been because there wasn't enough deliberation. Yeah. Yeah. And and I like what you said, too, about that power differential. So even before, at the very beginning, one of the ways that we try and um, um, get at power is I was working with a group last week, and it was a group of new faculty and the administrative unit um, that they work with. And we wanted to find out how did the last year go? There was a unique program that was implemented, and we were reflecting on how did it go. And I knew that if I just opened it up for conversation, Whoever is the first one to speak, that's where the conversation starts to go. And if somebody with power spoke, those without much power or perceived power would have been hesitant to speak up. So instead of having conversation first, I gave every person a stack of sticky notes. And I'm like, write every thought that you have about what went well. And then we did gaps and we did challenges on a sticky note. And then we'll collect them and group them so that everybody's ideas got evaluated as ideas, not as who said what. And that's a tool we often try and use to make sure that everybody is getting an equal chance to shape the conversation. Yeah, and I think that is so important for, you know, a lot of our listeners are leaders, you know, business leaders or CMOs and marketers. And, you know, when you're running a group discussion, and I've actually had leaders say, that they didn't think there was a power differential because, you know, they get along with their people. And I'm like, come on, you know, of course there is. So if you're a leader, you have to even be more conscious of it in building in the ability for people to actually express themselves or they're just going to agree with you and you're going to get nothing out of it. And not only power, but that makes me think, Steve, it's also about the types of processing people do. Some people are great. You start a conversation and they can just immediately start contributing. And they, they think while talking. That's me. I'm, I'm a, I think while talking. But some people need to sit and listen and process. And then when they do open their mouths, amazing, brilliant things come out because they've thought it through. They've connected the dots. And we often don't design spaces where we bring people together to talk that values that kind of, let's just say the introvert-extrovert dynamic, that we, we overlook the introverts who need more processing time, who really add so much value. And so processes that can, you know, make sure that we're designing things that allow people. So oftentimes when we design a process, if it's something like that, we'll send a few questions in advance to allow those introverts to really think and process and come to the table feeling prepared rather than, oh, we'll tell you what we're doing when we get in the room. No, let's, we'll tell you exactly how it's going to flow. Here's what you can expect. And here's a few key questions we're going to be asking during the day. Yeah, introverts love that. Being an introvert myself, I always love that. And, you know, I've been in a lot of situations where, you know, a CEO or someone will look at you and be like, what do you think right now? And my standard answer is I would like to think about it. 
at, because I want to give you the best answer I can give, not just the instant answer I can give you. You know, I can always come up with an instant answer, but my answer I get to think about is going to be better. So I think it's really interesting because, you know, I think it's an extroverted world sometimes and maybe, you know, not as much as it used to be. I think introverts have, have thrived in our, in our sort of post-pandemic, semi-pandemic world in that, you know, a lot of one-on-one -on -one discussions happen now like this. You know, and uh, it, but it is something that people just overlook, and that's just you know one part of how personalities and and all the human factors factor into just having a simple conversation about something. Absolutely, and and I want to make sure that I'm, I'm for for anybody listening, we're not trying to reduce this to a binary. People are introverted or extroverted. We're all some kind of combination. Because believe it or not, if you're listening to me, you probably figured out I'm an extrovert, but I'm an introverted extrovert. I also need my time to sit and think, and I don't gain energy all the time from big groups, but I like thinking with small groups of people. So we're all a combination. And that's, again, one of the work, the things that we do with ICAD is we always try and bust the binary. Tell people nothing exists as a pure binary. There's, it's just not. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, sometimes it's a handy tool to describe, you know, a construct, but, you know, especially with personalities and human beings, every human being is unique. And, you know, I'm, I, I've always tested as very introverted, but I perform improv on stage, figure that out. You know, that's very odd. So, and I love talking with others and being, I actually love being on stage and doing presentations in front of crowds. It's the whole thing is odd. Everyone's different. And I, but I think, you know, with, I studied theater and directing, which is related in a way because you're trying to, you're, you're basically just studying the human condition of what it is to be human, which comes into marketing and comes into all the things we do with brand. And human beings are so nuanced. Incredibly. Trying to get them to communicate as a group is really difficult. So what are the, some of the cha major challenges you run into when you're trying to help a group communicate? I, again, I, I mentioned that some people are like, we've been talking about this forever. There's just no sense coming together. And they don't understand that when you do it differently, when you're really being intentional and thinking about who is this group? What's their current context? We can do things in a different way that's be more beneficial. We're not just going to be repeating the same cycle over and over. Um, some of the other ones are in our context now, um, we have to recognize that people get hurt by things people say unintentionally. Um, that there are words that we use that have, you know, connotations that people take very personally. And we have to be able to make sure that we're not trying to be overly politically correct, but we are creating what we call not safe spaces, but brave spaces where people can feel like they can say, ooh, that didn't feel good to hear that. So there's a great little article that I use with my students rather than making it overly technical, but they say the three greatest words you need in a conversation that's gonna be difficult are oops, ouch, whoa. And oops is like when you can say, oh, Wow, I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. You know, like for instance, something at, that I just grew up thinking about how, how language shapes us. I have used a phrase, I'm a busy person. And oftentimes I use this little phrase, I'm busier than a one-armed paper hanger. I've heard that phrase. Like yep. One-armed person trying to hang wallpaper. Yeah, you've heard the phrase. Of course I have. But I realize how ableist that is. Yeah, I would never have thought of that. There's phrases like that all around us. 
There are so many phrases. And so I've, I've started to recognize that I really shouldn't say that. That's I can come up with something more creative and that doesn't harm anyone. And so somebody can say, like, I can say, oops, like, wow, okay, that's something I shouldn't say anymore. And somebody is free to say, ouch, that really hurts when I say something I don't even know is offending. And then people who need to say, whoa, I need time to sit with what's just happened here. We have to recognize we're human. We don't all speak perfectly. Things are going to come out that we didn't intend to come out that way. But we have to recognize that even if it wasn't our intent, it does carry harm or hurt to others. And so just being able to be honest about that in spaces, particularly when we're dealing with issues where people's identities are wrapped up. And so many of the issues we're dealing with in public are, are intersecting with people's identities. And so we have to be, and a lot of people just are very uncomfortable in spaces like that. So we have to build kind of the, the guardrails as we call them. So we create what we call group agreements. Here's how we'd like to ask you to talk with one another, not ground rules. I'm not being authoritarian about it, but if we're going to try and do the work that we're doing today, here's some ground or some group agreements that we should all agree to, like that we will speak from our own perspectives, that we will engage with curiosity. There, there's a, a bunch that we use regularly, but you can design them for the specific group, given what we know, you know, um, we even would do this about power. Like everybody at this table has different levels of power in the organization, but for today, we're all equal. You know, we're going to do our best to, to speak from that kind of a space. So we create these group agreements that from the beginning give everybody around the table a little sense of, okay, this is going to be managed and I can relax into the space. And we often print these up and stick it on the wall or in the center of a table so that people can remember we're really going to do this. And we don't stop at every infraction. We, we, we'd never get anything done, but we, we, we remind people, hey, just remember how we're going to try and speak to one another today. We don't shame people, but we also don't allow things to happen in a space that are really harmful. We would take a time out, stop, make sure that things get processed. So those are some of the things. Um, I think also is helping groups understand that many of the constraints they feel they have. So even when you're brainstorming, you're not supposed to evaluate ideas, but people do. They're like, oh, we can't do that because. And we try and say, how many of those constraints really exist and how many do we just perceive? And so we, we use these two little words that I love, what if? What if we could think beyond that constraint? What would we ideally want to do? And then if we see that that ideal is worth it, okay, if it's a real constraint, let's figure out how we get around it. So we, we use a lot of standard tools, but we mix them up in different ways to help people really get from point A, where they are now, to achieving goals. That is fascinating. And I, I'll tell you, I, I, I was thinking while you were telling me all that, that really what you're doing is setting up almost empathic guardrails. You know, you're, you're keeping people in this empathic space and trying to encourage them so yeah, you can take some risks, but you know, here's where, how we're going to have a space that feels safe, as safe as we can make it, but not so fragile that we can't actually have a discourse and talk to each other. That's really, I mean, I think groups need that in, so much <laughs> these days. You know, you see it in business, you see it in community groups where people are afraid to talk to each other sometimes. Yes, it, 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 because we see that modeled. We see people speak poorly and then get called out for it in public spaces. And so we start to think that's always going to happen. 
So the other, another challenge I'll mention is the challenge of expertise. When you've got experts in the room, because I want to challenge that everybody in the room, it, particularly as we're dealing with human issues, is an expert because we all have either been impacted or we know about the issue from a lived experience point of view. That is just as vital an expertise as somebody who studies this. And so we have to make sure that we are not defaulting to the experts in a room. There are many types of problems in the world where we do want experts. Like I want an expert performing my surgery. And I want an expert building the bridge in our town that has to remain structurally sound for 30 years. But when it comes to human issues, we all have expertise. When we're talking about issues about housing affordability, when we're talking about issues about, you know, human rights, everybody has issues. When we're talking about poverty, when we're talking about transportation, I, we were just talking about transportation in our town and there were things I had no idea about. I did not know our local bus system does not run on Monday or Sundays. I did not know our local bus system has a cap of how many bags, shopping bags, you can bring on with you. So when you go to the store, you can only fill enough things that fit in, I think it's four bags, or you're not allowed on the public bus. These, this is an expertise that people know because they live it every day. And I was completely unaware of it. And that shapes how we have conversations about how do we address more accessible public transportation in our community. Absolutely, it does. And, you know, it, it comes down to authentic listening. If you're, if you're not willing to listen to the people experiencing the thing, and especially when it's any kind of human uh, endeavor, you know, I think about that from the brand or marketing perspective. You know, uh, there are so many experts. And honestly, we I've always... and. You know, I have friends that say, let's let's kill the word creative because everyone thinks that it makes them not creative. Everyone's creative. Everyone has ideas. And I've always thought of people who work in this industry like us, we're just border collies. We just help you. You know, we're just running around trying to help everyone get to the same spot. And it is a very human thing. So is there anything else that you think makes people hesitate to participate? Because I think participation is hard to get these days. People want to stay in their own bubble in a lot of ways. It is. I think another thing that makes people hesitant is we've been locked into this binary of Republican, Democrat, conservative, progressive. These labels don't describe most people. Like you said earlier, we are much more nuanced than that. And yet they think if I come to this space, I'm not going to be listened to because there's going to be a bunch of liberals there or there's going to be a bunch of conservatives there or I don't want to sit in a space and listen to a conservative or listen to a liberal. If we would just realize and come into the space as humans, it is amazing what's possible. One of my very first public events that we held when I came to this community and you know was really getting ICAD going we did a, this was after Sandy Hook. So here we are again with another school shooting right back in the same place. But it was right after Sandy Hook. And there had been some events in our community where there were panel discussions where people were talking about the issue to the community. And the community said, we really want to talk to each other about this issue. And so we specifically named the event Guns, Security, and Public Life. We didn't imply that guns were part of making a community secure or make a community less secure. We're like, we want to explore that together. And we, we reached out to a lot of different people and we had people in the room who sold guns. We had people who were pacifists. We had a gentleman who emailed me afterwards and said, I very rarely go to public events, but I very strongly believe in gun rights. 
And I came to your event risking, he said, and I felt listened to for the first time. He said, I didn't feel like anybody discounted my position. I felt like they were willing to listen to why I felt the way I felt. And it helped us. And while we didn't solve that issue in our community, we didn't have, we don't have no law. I mean, we couldn't, we, it's a federal, going to be a federal law. But what we did was identify that, okay, maybe there are some other things that we can do about making everybody in our community feel valued and welcomed. What can we do on a personal level? What do we need structurally? Well, we need more help for people who don't feel connected or who are struggling with mental health issues. Not that all gun issues are related to mental health, but we know that some are. So we, we, we had follow-up conversations that led us in different directions to continue talking about that issue. But it was just really heartening to hear that somebody who didn't feel like they'd be listened to, who felt like it was gonna be a binary, us versus them, experience something different. And the more that we can help people experience things like that, I think the better. Well, you know, you're definitely doing some white hat communication there because there's plenty of black hat stuff going on out there where people are just intentionally trying to separate each other because it's either for profit or for gain. And, you know, fear sells. So if I make you afraid of the other, um, I might get something out of it. It's an angle people take. And, you know, it happens in marketing as well. And we've always, you know, used the shorthand that we are white hat marketers, so we don't use fear to sell things, you know? So I think anytime you can get anyone to feel valued and talk to each other, you're just doing really good work. So thank you for doing that in communities. That is a big deal. It is. And it's it's so rewarding. Every time, I mean, we get nervous, you know, we plan for big events and sometimes you hope you know, 50 people show up and you get three, but we always believe in having the conversation with whoever walks in the room. And then sometimes you expect 10 and you get 50. So we have to be flexible. But in any case, no matter what, when I walk out of particularly community conversations, I am lifted up by how many people really want to work with others and find ways that we can move forward together, even if we don't believe the same things. Well, it's just a very positive message that we all need to embrace these days more than any other time that I can think of. You know, we I think we got here by not talking to each other and we need a lot more talking to each other. So how, how have you seen the need for community dialogue change over the years? Um, I, again, I think it's more needed than ever. Um, but I also think that where we're finding the most success is at the local level. Because I think right now people are like, oh, you've got to bring the politicians together on, you know, in the Capitol. And yes, there are some organizations that try and do that and help people talk across the divides. But I think when we get people talking about the issues that affect them every single day, we can make more inroads. So I kind of see this as a groundswell that's going to bubble up. And once people experience this kind of talk and this kind of possibility when they feel listened to and heard and they hear other people and they're impacted by that, I think they're going to demand this kind of interaction more and more. And so I think it's going to bubble up and rise up to the top. I certainly hope so. And I love the work that you and ICAD do. I think it's so needed in our community and every community. So with leaders and organizations, you know, so a lot of time leaders make the decision of whether or not they're going to engage in this type of activity. What do you? What piece of advice or message would you give to leaders about taking the time and creating a space for this kind of dialogue? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I, and there's a couple of different things that people can do. And one is, if you're going to be a leader, you have to be transparent about how and why you want to bring people together and that you're actually going to do something with what you hear, with the 
the the experience that people bring you, they're they're going to be vulnerable. They're going to trust that you're going to do something with it. There's a variety of different ways you can use it. You can say, we're going to take this into account as we make the decisions, or we're going to share that decision-making authority, or we're going to get a smaller subgroup of people who participate in this to help us make the decision. But whatever you choose to do, be transparent. The second thing is, if you're going to do this, make sure that you understand um, and, and understand how to reach people where they are. This, these efforts, you can't just say, show up at X building one time because people have real lives. Um, they have to know that you're going to do something with it. They have to um, have multiple ways to connect with you. So while we, I am biased, I will admit, to face-to-face -face interaction, there are many ways that we can also engage with people online in ways that get at dialogue and deliberation. But you've got to think about what are the constraints that might keep people away? How do we reach a diverse set of the population? We've just done a big project here in our community where we did online surveys, we did public meetings, but then we also said for some groups who already meet on a regular basis, we'll come to you. We'll come to your meeting or your community space because we really value hearing from you. So we have to make sure that we're going to um, hit multiple levels and get people where they are and recognize the very real constraints they have. If people are working two jobs to afford housing um, if they don't have childcare. Another great thing I would say is as much as possible, feed people. Because when you feed people, the tenor of the conversation changes. It, it shapes something very different when you break bread together. There's actually models out there called breaking bread. You know, they, they capitalize on that or kitchen table conversations, living room conversations that capitalize on this notion of create a space where people feel comfortable, feel listened to. It doesn't have to be technocratic. It doesn't have to be overly formal. We can learn just as much in having really good conversations. Yeah. I think, you know, again, that comes back to having empathy for who you're trying to get to talk to you. And realizing that they have lives and not coming at it from like an authoritarian point of view, like we're the company or we're the organization and you should come talk to us, making it easy on others to give feedback in variety of formats. And then, you know, I love that thing you said about breaking bread with people because it does change. It, you know, it just changes. It's human. And I think people enjoy it. So what piece of advice have you been given that just stuck with you in your career? I think a piece of advice and or, or basically a guiding principle is that if we're not just teaching people how to communicate better, we're modeling for them what's possible when you shape the space and that each one of them can then go into another environment, back to their families, back to their workplaces and model and evoke that same kind of authentic intentional interaction that we're trying to build capacity. I don't want everybody to have to come out and say, call ICAD and say, hey, can you help us with this project? I want them to start to be able to do this for themselves every day. Yes, when you have a big project, we'd be happy to help or help you just design something that you can then implement. But every organization should have people who can um, do this, effectively model it and evoke it. And I think that to me has been kind of a guiding principle that I heard a long time ago is constantly build capacity. I'm not trying to be the expert at bringing people together to talk. I want everybody to know how to do that and how to do it better. Yeah, teaching people to fish instead of fishing for them is the way to be. So good for you, that's a great perspective. 
So in your career and, uh, and all the things you've learned, what's something that scared you, but you just went ahead and did it anyway? <laughs> oh, um, I think a lot of the conversations. So I, I'll go back to another conversation we had. Uh, it, this was long before the Supreme Court made the decision about same-sex marriage. So we were still talking about this in communities. And we were going to have a public event and we decided to start it with two experts talking to one another and modeling how to have a good, authentic, intentional conversation and then allowing the community to have their own conversations immediately afterwards. And I remember getting a lot of pushback because one of the people from both sides, and I, this is one time I will use the word sides, from both sides, people thought the people we had invited were too controversial. Um, and I'm like, but if we can't get those kinds of people to sit and have a conversation together, what hope do we have? If, if I put limits on who should be allowed to come to the table to talk, I, I've completely undone everything I believe in. And I will say that that event we watched, a, I moderated the conversation between the two of them, which I didn't have to do much moderation. Basically, I was asking them questions. Was amazing. And then the community had a conversation and both of the speakers came to me and said, well, what would you like us to do while the community is talking to one another? They're like, would you mind if we just go over here and sit at a table and continue our conversation? And in full view of 100 community members in this uh, cafeteria at a middle school, they saw at the same time, parallel to them, these two people continuing to talk and to be curious. And it was just so powerful symbolically that, yes, this is possible. So I think I've been scared because sometimes people think, oh, you can't bring these people together into a space. And I'm like, but if we believe in it, we've got to try. And I've never been disappointed. Yeah, you have to have the courage of your own convictions. And sometimes, you know, fear is just lying to you and you got to push forward. And especially when someone's trying to say, don't risk that, because, you know, bringing people of diverse backgrounds and diverse points of view together is, you know, key to what you guys do. So, yeah, that's a that's a real challenge, though. So what's next for you? What, do you have any big projects coming up? Well, we, we're working on a project in our community right now where we're asking um, for people to talk about the real impacts, economic and social, of the pandemic on themselves and on our community to help gather that input to help our city council decide how they're going to spend some of the federal dollars that are being infused into local communities. So that the city council said, I, we don't want to just make these decisions. We really want to hear how, how the pandemic impacted and, and what we think are some of the biggest needs. Um, we'll be working with the business community soon. One of my uh, co-directors, I want to give a shout out to both Rob Alexander and Kara Dillard, who are co-directors of ICAD now with us. Um, Rob works a lot on sustainability issues, and he's been working on some rails to trails efforts. And we are going to have this gorgeous rails to trails because of the work that Rob's been doing, helping people organize and advocate and have these great conversations. There's going to be a new rails to trails project. It's going to take a number of years to build, but we're going to do it. So, I mean, these are really exciting things. And we like to do projects that are kind of longitudinal. You know, yes, it's helpful to go in and help an organization one time, but we like to do things that we're going to continue to have kind of ripple effects throughout our community. So really big community-based projects. Those are two great ones right there. And uh, and the people that you work with, Rob, and uh, I don't know the other person, but I happen to know Rob. They're, uh, you have an amazing group 
that you guys do so much. Yeah, it is. And then we also, the, the, the great thing, Steve, is too, our capacity gets built because we have undergraduate students we train once a year. We have graduate students we train once a year and we get them involved. And one of the best things for me is that particularly our undergrad students, they get involved in these things. One of the groups last semester, they facilitated a conversation with about housing accessibility and technical ways that we can change building and zoning laws to alleviate some of these constraints that developers and builders have for building in our community. And of course, my students knew nothing about this. Like they don't even know zoning laws exist. And what, what I loved is how much they learn about public life by doing this. They don't have to be experts, but they have to know enough to ask some good questions and be curious and ask a question that might sound very naive to the people around the table who do this for a living. But when you ask people questions from that place, when they have to describe it to somebody who doesn't have a lot of knowledge, it can often clarify their own thought process for them as well. So I love that we involve students in this work as well. And that is crucial because again, we're building capacity. I'm building students who go into the world and shaping them in ways that they know that they can impact the conversations around them. Yeah. And they're learning good communication skills and good listening skills. And that is so valuable. So I'm so glad that your program exists. I've, I've always thought it was wonderful. So it's been, been so great to talk to you today. So I have just a couple last questions that I like to ask. If you weren't a communications professor, what would you be doing? I've always thought I would love to own a little gourmet food store and flower store combination. I just find those things bring me joy, food and flowers. And I love sharing things like that with people. So potentially that. Yeah, that's a good choice. I like that. And then is there anything that uh, for people that have listened today that you'd recommend like a book or something to watch or read? It's a complicated field because we, we bring people together from politics and sociology and communication and both academics and practitioners. So I would say, and I'm going to give a shameless plug because I happen to be the current board chair for the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation that you mentioned, but ncdd.org is a great resource and all the resources are open whether you're a member or not, but basically it's a hub, it's a community of practice that brings together people who do this work in all sorts of venues from mediation to deliberation to large scale political things. And there's so many things to learn and there's some great easy resources there. And there's, they, they will also connect and link out to other resources as well. So I would think that would be a great place to start. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because now I know it and I'm gonna go look at it. And then we'll put that, we build a landing page for every guest. Um, and we'll put links out to that on the page because I think that kind of resource for any business people, anyone listening, um, that's an incredible resource because we all need to, to embrace these skills and get better at them. So my last question today that I always like to ask people is if you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be? I think I've had an amazing circuitous route to where I've gotten to and I guess I was pretty self-assured because I never thought, oh, I'm making a wrong turn because I realized every turn was going to give me something I could add. Um, it doesn't all have to fit together linearly, but the, I think I would say be comfortable in your own skin early on. I don't think I got comfortable in my own skin until I was in my 30s. And I think that was a lot of this kind of built up about societal expectations and how society expects particularly women to think and speak and act. And, and I, I just wish I had been a little bit more comfortable in my skin earlier. 
Um, but embrace every turn out there because you don't know what it's going to add. Um, it's going to land you somewhere, whether you call it fate or kismet or somebody's grand plan. It's all going to eventually make sense because you get to write the story that pulls it all together. You get to, to you're the author of the story that pulls together all the disparate strands into kind of a coherent whole. So write your story and write it boldly. That's beautiful. Thank you. That's the perfect ending. It is all about the journey. And uh, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this today, Lori. This was really oh, fun. Oh, I did too, Steve. You made it so comfortable. Thank you so much. Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story. Brand Story.